The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. <laughs> We're going to read the word. If you have your Bible, you can uh, turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. If you have uh, one of the Bibles that are under the chairs, some of the black Bibles, you can grab those if you don't have one. I think it's on page 855 there. It'll also be, should be on the screen behind me. Here's the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we started a new series in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We're calling it Cross and Crown, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in about nine months uh, through... uh, through May, it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope uh, I hope you're ready. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's September, the first Sunday of September, and we're like doing the Christmas story, right? So it's either like view it as like getting yourself ready, or I view it as this. Some, you know, somehow, have you ever walked into a room of your house and you, for for whatever reason, you see it with fresh eyes, like you like you see like. A room in your house, the way a visitor in your house would see it, and all of a sudden, like, because you, you get used to seeing something every day of your life, and you don't really, you see it, but you don't see it, and you walk into a room of your house, and you're like, wow, that's what this room looks like. For better or worse, that's what this room looks like to somebody who's visiting my house. I think sometimes if that, that's like us, if you, are, if you grew up around church, you grew up in the South, or uh, you've been a Christian a while, or you've been going to church for a while, some stories we hear, and we've heard them so many times that we don't really hear them anymore. And I think the Christmas story or the birth of Jesus is sort of like that at Christmas. Like, we know we're going to hear about the story, and a lot of us may know, like, certain parts of Luke or the story, like, by heart, and we don't really hear it. And so hopefully us hearing it at the beginning of September might be just something different enough that will help us hear it again for the first time this morning. We're looking at, really, a, the scripture reading was from verse 26 all the way through 38, but really we're dealing with verse 5 all the way down down to 56, like I told you guys last week, 
uh, even though it's nine months, we're going to be going through Luke at a breakneck speed. There's a lot of things in this passage that I would love to talk about, but we just don't really have time to talk about everything. Uh, but we're going to look at a couple of key things out of this passage. Uh, if you would, let's pray and we'll get rolling. Uh, Father, I thank you for... Uh, the fact that we have gathered here together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the communion that believers have with each other. Father, for those of us who are here in this midst and we uh, are thankful for them and we hope that they're here, the people who do not know you and do not profess you as Lord. Father, I pray that they would see our love for you, our love for each other. More than that, I pray that they would see that those are mere dim reflections of your great love for us. Father, for all of us here this morning from who are in places of joy and places of pain, who are believers and not believers, the one thing that we need this morning, all of us that we need, whether we know it or not, is to hear from you. Father, I pray that you would make your word alive this morning, that you would uh, help me to hear you, that you would help us to hear you, and that you would glorify your son Jesus in our midst. Holy Spirit, teach us. Lead us, lead me in my incredible uh, weakness, I pray this morning. Amen. So last week we covered verses one through four of Luke. And we're kind of just laying the groundwork of the how, why Luke was writing the gospel of Luke. And the reason he was writing is writing to a dude named Theophilus, which is a fun name to say. And he was writing to a guy named Theophilus, and he, was, he said, I'm writing this to let you know what has been accomplished among us. And he's saying that I'm, I decided that I needed to put together an orderly account of what happened in the life of Jesus. In fact, not just the life of Jesus, because Luke is part one of a two-part series that's coming up in the book of Acts, which is right after the book of the Gospel of Luke, or, I mean, which is not in the order of the Bible, but we're going to be covering the, gospel, the, the story of Acts right after the Gospel of Luke here at Doxa. It's a two-part deal. And he's, I'm telling you what has been accomplished among us, beginning from whenever Jesus was born to all the way to the present time to see how the church was born itself and how what Jesus came to do, what he began in his earthly ministry and what he continues to do even today, even today to this point in time in the 21st century in South Carolina, in Ori County, in Myrtle Beach, in America. That's, he's, he's writing to tell us what Jesus began to do so that he can have certainty, he says in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what Luke is writing to him, he's hoping to give Theophilus certainty of the gospel. That's why it's called the gospel of Luke. It's the good news of Jesus Christ as told by or as accounted by Luke, as collected by and counted by. We talked about last week how he was a historian. He was a man who liked details. He wanted to make sure that he had his sources correct. Luke, if you are kind of a type A personality or you like a, tend to be sort of a skeptic or a doubter, you want to have your eyes crossed, uh, eyes eyes crossed? You want to have your eyes dotted and your T's crossed? You you tend to be sort of a skeptic like I am. You want to make sure, hey, I know they said this happened, but did it really happen? Luke is the guy for you because he has consulted eyewitnesses. He's been around the block and he has put together what is the closest to a chronological order of Jesus' life that we absolutely have. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. He's explaining to Theophilus. He wants, he wants him to know that he can have certainty. That's why we are studying and looking at over the next nine months that you and I may have certainty concerning the truth and the veracity of the gospel. 
that who Jesus was and what he did and what people said he was and what has happened since then is true and real. Now, the, the important thing to understand is that you really can't understand the depth of the good news. Gospel means good news, and it can't really be, it might just be news to you. Like, like to me, I, if I look a little droopy-eyed this morning, it's because I'm a Clemson fan. And they kept me up in the game last night because they kept it too close to the end because the guy didn't run out of bounds. Well, that's a whole other sermon that I'll preach one day. The guy didn't run out of bounds, and so it went down to the very end of the game. And then I was so hyped up that I couldn't go to sleep. I'm just sitting there, like, in the quiet of my house and after midnight going, what in the world? And so that may not be... that. What I just told you, you, some of you don't care at all about football, and some of you don't care about Clemson. That's news to you. To me, what happened at the end of that game was incredibly good news, even though it was frustrating before we got there. It was good news because they won the game, because I'm invested in them. Now, for you, the gospel may be news, but it won't be good news until you know why it's good. Number one, we need to understand that for the people that are this, as this scene is opening the book of Luke, we see uh, the gospel of Luke, we have Zechariah, who is a priest, we have his wife, Elizabeth, we have Mary, and we have Joseph. That's what this scene is opening on now. Zechariah is a priest, his wife, Elizabeth, they are old, and they are what the Bible calls barren. That means they don't have any children. It's not, it was not what the Bible calls it, but the Bible calls it barren. It carries a weight that you and I don't quite understand. Because in our society, have kids or you don't have kids, you know, it's, it's no big deal either way. In Jewish society, in ancient society, for a woman not to have children was an incredible shame upon her and her household. Because that is how a woman proved her worth, was to have children, particularly to have a son, to be able to pass on the name to the next generation, and so for a husband and a wife to not have a child, was cons- people considered them cursed by God. There was an assumption that either he or she or maybe their parents had done something wrong, had committed some sort of a sin that caused them to be barren and have no children. So even though scripture says that he, Zechariah was a priest and Elizabeth, he, both of them, it says that they were blameless, they were righteous in the way that they lived. They lived holy lives before God. Even though they did so, there were people probably in the background around them, friends and neighbors and family members who are wondering what has Zechariah or Elizabeth done in secret that we do not know about that has caused them not to be able to have children, that has caused her to be barren. So though he was considered a blameless or a righteous or a good man, there was a consideration that there was probably some sort of curse hanging over their house by God. Now, Mary is Elizabeth's cousin. She's a young girl, a virgin. Now, virgin means virgin in the scripture, but it also means that she was probably very young, possibly 12, 13, 14 years old at the time. That would be the time that a young girl would be marrying at this time. She's betrothed to a guy named Joseph. And Joseph is a good man. He's a peasant carpenter in the city or the village of Nazareth. It would be the sort of the equivalent of like Mary's a good girl that lives in, say, Loris or Aner or Conway, and she is engaged to a decent, good construction worker, works with his hands, has a decent reputation around town, but they're sort of peasant, like 
mid, mid, mid-class, lower to maybe lower class, can live a decent living, but they're in a sort of forgotten. Nazareth is a sort of forgotten village in a forgotten region of Israel, which is a forgotten region of the Roman Empire. Like nothing, in fact, later on when, whenever Jesus be, uh, starts to call his disciples and one of them hears that he is from Nazareth, what they say is, does anything good come from Galilee? Does anything good come from Nazareth? It's be sort of the same thing that you and I would say if we heard like some awesome thing was happening in Loris or Conway or Aner. Does anything good happen there? Does anything good come out of there? If some other people heard like, hey, there's something really cool going on in Myrtle Beach, Myrtle Beach kind of has a reputation across the country. They would, might say, does anything good come out of Myrtle Beach? That's sort of the situation they're in right now. Now, the Jewish nation, Mary, Joseph, Zechariah, Elizabeth, the whole Jewish nation had been waiting and longing and asking for salvation for hundreds of years. God had promised the nation of Israel that they were his promised, his favored people. And he said, if you obey me and worship me and love me, then I, everything will go well with you and you will be a powerful nation. But if it does not go well, I will scatter you across the world. And hundreds of years before this, they had been scattered, the nation of Israel and Judah, they had been scattered across the world. And really nothing has quite, they've had some sort of fits and starts since then, but nothing has quite been like the glory days since then. And now, for years upon years upon years, Israel had been under the control of the Roman Empire, and before that, the Greek Empire. They had not really run their whole nation in a very long time. They had been subjugated and oppressed. And they knew this was not the way things were supposed to be. This is not what God told us was supposed to happen to the nation of Israel. And they had tried many times to try to throw off the oppression that they were under, to throw off the, the powerful empires that were controlling them, and every single time they had tried, they had been stamped out, embarrassingly so. The Jewish nation had been waiting and longing and asking for salvation for hundreds of years. So when God comes and sends Gabriel to speak to Zechariah and then to Mary to say, salvation is coming for you. You have to understand that this is really good news for them and it's good news for the nation of Israel because they have been waiting and longing in subjugation and oppression for salvation for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here's the second thing you need to understand, to understand why what Luke is accounting is good news. Because we all spend our lives waiting and longing and asking for salvation. All of us, we may tell ourselves that we are the master of our own domain, but we find over and over again that we're not. Circumstances occur Things that, bad habits, things that you know that if you continue in your life will derail your life, will, could ruin you, could ruin your family. I was reading an article yesterday about how the growth of opiates in America, particularly among uh, lower to middle class 
white people and particularly women, middle-aged women in that range. And I told this story about a lady in California who is addicted to opiates and she has drinking loads of vodka every day, which you cannot mix those two together. And she knows that it is a slow suicide that's happening and she can't stop herself. Now, some of us in this room may be going through that exact same kind of scenario or have family members that are in that same kind of scenario. But even if you aren't that far, there are things, circumstances, issues in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your family, in your career, where you are painfully aware that you are not in control and master of your own domain. We as people spend our lives with a vague sense of that, the fact that we need salvation. We need something somewhere to come and save us, to give us true identity, a true bedrock to live on. We spend our lives looking for that, and we look for it in a million different places. And over and over again, no matter what we try, no matter what we do, we come up empty. We realize that didn't save me, and we're going to chase something else. We find over and over again that we are actually subjugated and depressed, oppressed. We have a sense that this is not the way things were meant to be, but nothing we do seems to get us over the hump. We set a finish line down the road saying, if I cross this finish line, it might be education, it might be a certain amount of my bank account, it might be marriage, it might be kids, it might be relationship, it might be a certain number, it might be silly to say out loud, but for some of us, it's a certain number of likes on our posts on Facebook or Instagram, like whatever it may be, we cross those lines and it just doesn't quite do it for us like it used to. It's the law of diminishing returns we talked about before, it's... You see it happen at Krispy Kreme, right? You eat one donut and hot fresh now, it goes down like manna from heaven. (laughs) Which draws you in to eat the second one, which goes down just as easily, but isn't quite as good as the first one. And then you decide to chase that like with a third one because they go down, when they're hot and fresh now, it's like it's it's like you're not eating anything at all. And then three, four, five, I won't tell you how many down later, it gets down the road, uh, you might be shamely, shamefully in your car at night by yourself with a box in the seat beside you, or you might have been bringing donuts home to the family, and you're sitting in the driveway, and they never make it inside. Like, whatever, however far it goes for you, it's the law of diminishing returns. The fourth donut is never as good as the first. And that's what we experience in life. We taste something that's good, we feel like it promises salvation, and we chase that down the road, and it never quite delivers what we hoped it would. One of the things that Luke starts off telling us in his gospel is that the salvation that came wasn't quite what the Jews had expected. And because of that, it didn't come in the way they expected The message of the gospel is the same for us. We do need salvation, but what you and I need saving from is far different than what we probably expect it to be. Most of us here this morning, if we were really honest, we would think the thing that I really need saving from is I just need to have, I just need to get over the hump in our marriage. I need to get over this crisis with my kids. I need to get out of this financial situation 
And if I can get over that hump, like things will be okay for me and for us. That's what we really need saving from. But what we need saving from is far different than what we usually think. What we usually think. And therefore, it comes in a way that we don't expect. That's why salvation is so surprising. We're going to see here Zechariah and Mary are both surprised. But they weren't just surprised by an angelic vision that appeared to them. They were surprised because of the message of the angels that appeared to them. It was not what they expected because what they thought they needed saving from wasn't what they thought they actually needed saving from. Let's look real quick. Three characteristics of salvation that make it so surprising. One is that salvation appears to unsuspecting people. Secondly, salvation appears at unexpected times. And third is that salvation appears in unimagined ways. Salvation appears to unsuspecting people. It appears at unexpected times. And it appears in unimagined ways. First, salvation appears to unsuspecting people. As we've already mentioned... Zechariah and Elizabeth were described in verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It was considered, by the way, this is just stored away for a priest to have another wife from the children of Aaron or from a a daughter of another priesthood family was considered a great blessing. And they were both righteous before God, walking, it says, blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, if we were to draw up like who deserves salvation to come to them, we would say Zechariah and Elizabeth deserve it. They've lived a holy and blameless life. They're advanced in years. There's a nice way of saying they're old. She's barren. He's faithfully been serving as a priest for years and years and years. They've lived a good, godly, quiet life. They have a great reputation. They deserve, if we are describing salvation, they deserve help. And you and I tend to fall under that sort of lie ourselves if we're honest with ourselves we tend to think that getting something from God is sort of a trade-off God I will give you my devotion I will be at church I'll be a part of a community group I will give money I will serve I will read my Bible I will do my thing I will I will play I'll even play Caleb in the car you know I'll, I'll do whatever it takes like I will do these things but then when something bad happens we feel that God owed us something different than what actually happened because God I've been following after you I've been I gave up a lot to follow you I deserve something in return. And we have to wonder if maybe Elizabeth and Zechariah had that feeling themselves. God, we have given our life to you. We pray. We have a quiet time. He is a pastor for goodness sake. We live these holy, blameless lives. We keep your commandments. And yet the one thing that we need, we cannot get. We can't get this child that we are longing for. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to deserve it. But then we also see that salvation appears to those who don't seem to deserve it. And the account with, and these are kind of cool because they're two sort of parallel accounts of where the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and then he appears to Mary. He appears to Zechariah, the priest, while he is inside the temple offering the offering of incense. We'll come back to that in a second. He appears to Mary. And look at what he, what he says in the section that we read. And when he came to her and said, verse 28, greetings, O favored one. Listen to what he said, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's interesting to me that he didn't say that to Zechariah. To Zechariah, he said, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. But Mary, he says, you are favored. The Lord is with you. But, verse 29, she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She, he says, you are favored, Mary, and she's troubled by that. It doesn't quite say that she's just troubled by the fact that an angel appeared to her. She's troubled at why he would be saying, you are favored. She doesn't really, though, like we look back now at Mary and like depending on where your background, you might like feel like she's too deified by the Catholic Church or maybe there's sort of some leftover, you have a background in the Catholic Church and we tend to deify her, I think she was perfect. But Mary was just a girl from any account that we have. She was just a girl. Had done nothing particularly fantastic in her life. And she is so aware of that fact that when the angel says you are highly favored, she is troubled by the saying. Salvation appears to those who seem to deserve it and also to people who don't seem to deserve it. To deserve it. Salvation appears to the people who have asked. We read that section whenever he appeared to them and said, your prayer has been answered, Zechariah. They had been, they had been barren and they had been seeking and praying for years and years and years to have a child, Zechariah and Elizabeth had. Children were seen as a blessing from God to be barren, was seen as a curse from God. And they had, so therefore they had agonized and beseeching before God for years and years. And I wonder what kind of struggles may they have had during that time. Day after day, year after year passes, when she's in her prime childbearing years, and they're wondering, God, have you forgotten us? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered, I wonder if I'm forgotten by God? Have you ever felt like maybe you're the ugly stepchild of God? That he looks at you and he really loves his certain children and you he considers his child, but you're not favored like they are. I wonder if they wondered if they have some sort of secret sin or condition that caused God to curse them, to look over them. I wonder if they wondered, are we less loved by God than others? I wondered through those Years of disappointment if they at times wondered, I wonder if God is even real. Do you ever wonder that? I'll be honest with you, I wonder that. And I'm an elder of the church. I preach here three out of four Sundays. And I often wonder, God, is this all real? I 
I wonder if they wondered had they wasted their lives on something that was false. And then I bet they also had to probably wrestle with pride and doubt. They probably had to wrestle with pride and thinking, hey, we are righteous, good people. This should not happen to us. That's pride. But they also probably had to wrestle with doubt and wondering if God was real and that if he even loved them as his children. The scary truth in this is that oftentimes our own goodness blinds us to salvation. Sometimes our own goodness blinds us to our need for salvation. Some of us are so good at checking off the boxes and living a good, religious, holy life that we somehow think that we get to earn something before God with those actions, with that life. And yet Isaiah described our righteousness as filthy rags before God. Salvation appears to people who deserve it and who don't seem to deserve it, to people who have asked, and then to people who haven't, who haven't asked. There's no record. This is interesting to me. This is, there's no record in this exchange that this was a response in any way to Mary's prayer. Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for so long for a child that they had given up. And Mary hadn't prayed a single prayer towards that at all. In fact, she wouldn't have as an unmarried virgin in Israel. This occurrence is totally surprising to Mary because she has, as the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, you are blessed and you're going to conceive a child and his name will be Jesus, he will be holy and he will be the heir to David that will take his throne for eternity and he will bring salvation to your people. She has a sense of her own need and a grasp of her lack of goodness. I think that's why she's called blessed. Blessed in this exchange with the angel. She's called blessed because God put his favor upon her when there there was nothing else that was endearing to her, uh, about her, to him. And she realized that. She was blessed because she knew that she was not intrinsically good. And she didn't have things going for her. And she didn't earn anything before God. That's really the difference we see in the exchange with Zechariah and Mary. Salvation appears to unsuspecting people, then salvation appears at unexpected times. This is interesting to me. Zechariah and Elizabeth had asked God for a child for a long time. And yet when the angel appears to him, Zechariah is surprised. He's so surprised when the angel says, uh, your wife is going to bear a child. In verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, now get the picture. Zechariah has gone into the temple. This is probably the highlight of Zechariah's life as in his career. The day that, because there were so many priests, you didn't get to serve all the time. And he got drawn by, he was, this is his day to serve, and he got drawn by a lot to actually offer the offering of incense inside the holy place of the temple. So he would go in there and he would clear off the, the old incense off the, off the altar. He would check the candles and make sure they're 
uh, set and ready to burn another day and he would make sure they were lit and he would light the new incense. This would, be the, this would be the one time in his life that he would do this. The one time he gets to offer this sacrifice, this offering. So he leaves the people, they're out, outside in the, in the courts. He goes into the holy place at this point, he, there, usually there might be four priests in there, but at this point, he's alone because sometimes they would take turns doing the different duties. He's in there alone. This is the highlight of his life. He's in the temple, in the holy place, and the angel appears to him, and he's absolutely shocked and surprised that an angel would appear to him at this point. And then when the angel tells him that his wife is going to bear a child, he's absolutely shocked and surprised again because he's been so frustrated for so long. I think he's just given up on this dream this prayer altogether. She's past her childbearing years. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. They had asked for so long that they had given up on asking. God had heard them, but the answer wasn't just for them. Now this is just an interesting deal. Some of the things that you and I pray for, God hears those prayers. But the answer isn't, oftentimes we're praying like, God, I would be really happy if my wife and I had a better relationship or if we had kids or if I had a better job or whatever the case may be that we pray about. God hears your prayers. But oftentimes he's gonna answer them in a way that's a bigger picture than just you having a better marriage or you having more behaved kids or you having a better job. He's answering in a way to showcase his glory to the people around you. It was to be a joy for them. We see that Zechariah and Elizabeth end up rejoicing, but it wasn't just for them. It was to be bigger than them. But though Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying and asking God for a child for a long time, Mary wasn't expecting anything at all. A, a peasant girl in Galilee, this would be the last thing she'd be expecting to be pregnant before she got married, obviously. And honestly, a peasant girl in Nazareth would not be expecting much from life at all. Because a woman was considered maybe a touch above chattel, and she was in a poor, small village. So her greatest joy in life would be to bear children for Joseph and hopefully a son. That would be her greatest joy in life. That would be her, probably all that she'd be hoping for or looking forward to. She's not expecting much from life at all. It's interesting to me that in Zechariah, he's in the temple and ironically, it's probably the last thing he expected to happen in the temple was to actually meet with a messenger of God in there. And I wonder sometimes if that's the way that we kind of gathered as we come to church as we gather, as we go to a small group or sit down with a friend to, to share our lives or to open the Bible, I wonder if, if, if at any time that we go to church and he actually shows up, are we actually surprised that he does that? When actually that's his place that he gathers to meet with us, though he's with us all the time. This is a terrible time, by the way. You're talking about salvation appears at unexpected times. This is a terrible time for Mary to receive the news that she's pregnant. Because for a girl to be pregnant before she got married was a black spot. It was a scarlet S upon her for the rest of her life in this society. And there was a shame upon her family. 
And this, in this culture, it was a, it was a familial culture, it was a, a tribal culture. And so shame upon your family was shame upon you. And so for her to bring shame upon her family was just the worst thing that she could possibly do. And who's gonna believe her when she tells them, hey, I'm carrying the child of God. I'm, the Holy Spirit came upon me and that's how I conceived this child. Who would believe that? She's facing at this point when the messenger Gabriel is standing before her telling her what's gonna happen. She's facing certain ostracization from her people, from her village, and shame upon her family. It would normally be joyful news for a woman in Israel to hear that she was having a son, but for an unwed woman, it would mean, in many ways, the end of her life, the end of her friendships. How would she explain it to her betrothed husband, her parents, and her community? Salvation appears in un, to unsuspecting people in, in unexpected ways, and then salvation appears in unimagined ways. It would not be the way that someone at this time who's waiting for salvation, the salvation of Israel to come, which, by the way, they thought would be a mighty king and a ruler who would come and overthrow the oppressive Roman government and set Israel back up as its own kingdom and would bring in the glory days of David and Solomon. But to send the long prophesied forerunner throughout the Old Testament that was prophesied that when the, before the Messiah comes, someone would come to prepare the way for the Messiah to come, the Savior, that's what the Messiah means. But to send the long prophesied forerunner of the, of the Messiah to an old, barren country pastor and his wife was not the way anybody would draw it up. And to send the long-awaited Messiah to an unmarried, uneducated young girl and her carpenter fiancé in tiny Nazareth was totally unimagined. It was so far off the radar, no one would ever believe it. Everything involved in this would be the opposite of what Jews would consider where the Messiah would come. Through an unwed mother, to a peasant family, and we see next week how the birth occurs, which you guys kind of probably already know. The kind of life that he would lead up till 30 years being a carpenter for most of his life. Totally unimagined. I think it's interesting how we see the contrast of how Zechariah and Mary respond to the angelic visions. Gabriel comes to him, I mean, comes to Zechariah and says, your wife is going to conceive a child. God has heard your prayer. This is going to happen. You will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, to, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now you would think, Zechariah, he's a priest. He's in the holy place. An angel appears to him. You would think, like, at this moment, he would think, this is a holy moment. What the angel is telling me is true and real. And yet what Zechariah, the trained priest, the holy man, 
who had served for years and years and years, a blameless, righteous man before God, what he responds is, he responds in doubt. He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. We know he responds in doubt because of the angel's response to him. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that those things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah, the trained, holy pastor, the trained holy priest who served for years and years and years has let doubt creep creep into his heart. And when the angel comes before him and says, this is what will happen, he responds in doubt saying, how could this be? Because like, I know God is like the almighty creator of heaven and earth, but if you haven't seen, my wife is kind of old and kind of prunish. She's old on the other side of their childbearing years. She's not exactly Vital and virile. He responds in doubt. And this holy, good man, this pastor, he is chastened and disciplined by a loving heavenly father for this. He does end up, we'll see next week, he does end up rejoicing with Elizabeth when John is born. But he receives that joy. He receives salvation through humility by being humbled. Zechariah had to be lowered to receive salvation. And there are some of us in this room that we've let pride, our goodness creep into our heart to think that we actually, God owes something to us And that has built doubt into our heart. And for us to receive salvation, to find joy in salvation, we have to be humbled in order to see that. Some of us have gone through great humiliation exercises where you have been brought low. And it was painful and it hurt at the time, but you discovered the sweetness on the other side as God revealed your need for him to you in the midst of your pain. God, when that happens, it is a loving, gracious, heavenly father that would give you the gift to see your need for him. Then we look at Mary's response. He said, he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? So she has a question too. But her question comes from a different heart. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. We see this unmarried, uneducated young girl facing certain scorn and shame and we see her respond in faith. She responds in faith because she realizes that she has received undeserved favor, which is the very definition of grace. 
She receives salvation just like Zechariah does. He receives salvation through humility, through being humbled. Mary receives salvation through humility by understanding her great need for a savior. Salvation is surprising, not because of an angelic vision. It's surprising because it's not usually what we want or think that it should be. It's surprising because the way up, the way to joy, the way to salvation that we are all seeking is the way down. The way to joy is through emptiness. The way to salvation is through realizing that you need saving Mary realized that it was only through the one that she was to carry in her womb that she would be saved. And that was unmerited favor to her. Because you see, humility lies at the heart of faith. Salvation comes to the lowly. See, Jesus' kingdom is upside down that way. It's our lowliness and our poverty that opens our eyes to see our need for salvation. It's only realizing that you need good news, that good news is good to you. It's our lowliness and our poverty that qualifies us for salvation. Yet it's often our sense of Our lowliness and poverty, that's the very thing that we fight against. We don't want to feel like we don't bring anything to the table. We don't want to feel lost. We don't want to feel in need. We don't want to feel like we have empty hands. That's because we don't want to think that we need a savior. But it's only through the atoning, cleansing, work from all the wrong that we have done by the one that Mary was carrying in her womb. It's only through finding our identity and value through another who was perfect and who loved us and loves us with an unimaginable love that we can be free to express our neediness and bow our knees to the almighty God. That's the thing that frees us to be able to admit our need. Is when we see that he, God loves us through Jesus Christ and his atoning death on your behalf. Through the identity and value that you get from him sending his son for you that enables you to admit, I bring nothing to the table. And to bow your knee to him as Lord. And say, I come with empty hands. I come a dirty vessel. I come in utter need of salvation. Would you save me? If you would, if you'd indulge me, I want to read Mary's response as we prepare for communion this morning. I want to read Mary's response to the angelic vision. This is after the vision, after she meets Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, you are carrying my Lord. And then Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. But hear that? The humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who, who is mighty has done great things for me. She realized her need to have them done for her. And holy is his name. And his mercy, she realizes her need for mercy, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud, the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's the gospel. It's only those who are hungry that can be filled. It's only those who recognize their poverty that can be given the riches that are in Christ. It's the upside down kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.